I'd like for you to turn with me over to Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, Old Testament prophet, Isaiah chapter 7. Well, we have already sung today our, uh, our my favorite Christmas hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. That second line there, glory to the newborn king, glory to the newborn king. What is Christmas about? Well, Christmas is really, it is bringing glory, giving glory to the newborn king. Now, while I understand that most Christian people at this time of the year, and I I use Christians in parentheses, okay, or in quotes, some are Christian, some are not, but still we at least understand that most of us anyways, we focus on the baby in the manger and have some idea what Christmas is all about. But we often fail to see the big picture of who he was and why he came. Christmas is really all about the king of the Jews, the Messiah, being born, living a perfect life, dying for our sins on the cross, and then rising again from the dead. That Messiah is the Lord Jesus Christ. Scriptures are very clear, as we will see. Now, the Christmas story really has a great deal to do with the very history of the world. And uh, we're going to see that beginning with the promise in Genesis chapter 49 in verse 10 to Judah and that the scepter will not depart and so forth, talking about the king who would come out of the tribe of Judah, who would be the king of the world. And this one would come and rule and reign one day, all the way back in Genesis. That's amazing when you think about it. But that is the prophetic word of God. His kingdom, the Bible tells us, his kingdom will have no end. And this story is like a thick piece of scarlet thread, starting in Genesis, running through every page of the scriptures, all the way to Revelation chapter 22. It is history, in a true sense, okay? History is his story, his story. And so what I'd like to do today is take a short walk, you might say, through the Word of God and let us see this wondrous thing that God has accomplished. And really, in the end, hopefully what we will be doing is bringing glory to the newborn king. So let's look first of all at the promise of the king, the promise of the king. God promised a king would come. In the Old Testament, God promised that the Messiah would come and save all mankind from their sins. He would be God in the flesh, this one who would come. He also promised that the Messiah would have a kingdom. Now with a king comes a kingdom. They kind of go hand in hand. The Bible gives us a clear description of this one who would come. And this is amazing. I know many of you have seen these truths and and maybe you even grew up with these truths. But there's a lot of people who may end up viewing this over the internet or you may even possibly be here today. What I'm covering today is brand new to you. You had no idea that this was actually in the Bible. And so I want you to see it. It is incredibly profound in what the Bible tells us on this. The promise of the king. How do we recognize him? How do we describe him? Well, the scriptures are clear. For the sake of time, I've only chosen just a few that let us see this picture, okay? And we're starting in Isaiah. Now understand this. Isaiah prophesied over 600 years before Jesus Christ ever came into the world. 
So there was no way for Isaiah to bring these things about. Rather, he got his word from God, he penned it, he penned it down, he wrote it down, and we have it with us today, and we can look back and say, wow, is this amazing or what? The first one is this, he would be born of a virgin. Now that's unique right there, isn't it? Isaiah seven fourteen. it says, therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. You notice that he would be born of a virgin. Now that is an absolute miracle. Most of you understand it just doesn't happen that way. All right? But nevertheless, this is exactly what would happen as we are going to see later on as we go through this morning. Born of a virgin. So how do you identify this one who would come? Well, number one, he would be virgin born. That would set him apart from anybody who's ever lived. And that is exactly what we see in the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, not only that, but where would he be born? He would be born in Bethlehem. Now the word Bethlehem, it means the house of bread. And of course, out of the house of bread came the bread of life. Jesus described himself as the bread of life. I am the bread of life. He came out of the house of bread, which is Bethlehem, but not just any Bethlehem. At the time, it was written in Micah chapter five, verse two, by the way, if you want to turn there, Uh, he's one of the minor prophets, or you can just follow along on the screen. There were two Bethlehems at the time when this was written. And one of them was entitled or or named Bethlehem Ephratah. The Bible, see, is very clear. God makes it very clear which one. You know, he didn't want people showing up at the wrong place. So he says, let me give you more specific directions here. This is the way it's going to be. And look at what it says in Micah 5, 2. It says, but thou Bethlehem Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee... Shall he come forth unto me? Look at the wording, how careful this is now. Out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel. Glory to the newborn king. Whose goings forth have been from old, look at this, from everlasting. Okay, what does that tell us? Well, that's the third description of who he's going to be. He would be eternal, which would mean that he is God because God is the only one who is from everlasting. So what do we see? He would be born of a virgin. He would be born in Bethlehem and he would be God himself. I would say this kind of narrows it down, don't you? On who he is. Not only that, but turn with me back to Isaiah. We even have some more description on this one who would come, this king who was going to come, the promised king to the nation of Israel who would bring with him a kingdom. Fourth, we see in Isaiah chapter nine and verse six, he would be be called wonderful, counselor, the mighty God, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. Do you see it? For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. In other words, he would be the king. Government would be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father. So he's not a created being, the Prince of Peace, the Prince of Peace. Let me give you another one here. Fifth, his kingdom would be eternal. 
his kingdom would be eternal. Not only is he eternal, but the kingdom he brings with him would be eternal. From the time he begins that kingdom, there will be no end to that kingdom. Yes, friends, he is the last world ruler of history, the Lord Jesus Christ. No one will come after him. We see in verse seven, it says, of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice, look at this, from henceforth even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So we see five descriptions here under the truth that we have the promise of the king. He would be born of a virgin. He would be born in Bethlehem. He would be eternal, which means he is God. He would be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, and his kingdom would be eternal. And you know, that only makes sense if he is the eternal God, Almighty God, ruling and reigning, then who is going to take it from him? Nobody. His kingdom will be forever. And so we see the great promise of the king. But then what happened with the the passing of time The passing of time came, number two, the birth of the king who would come. He entered the human race in time and space. Okay, now listen. Jesus Christ is not made up. Jesus Christ is an actual person of world history. He was born. He lived the life. He's in secular history, not just the Bible, but he's certainly in the Bible. He's the key figure. He's the central figure in all of Scripture. But he was born. He entered the human race in time and space. The father knew exactly when he would send Jesus into the world. The book of Galatians calls it the fullness of time. In the fullness of time, he would come. And that's exactly what he did. The time of this coming, it was all prophesied. We see it in the Old Testament, friends. This is an amazing truth. Let me just pause here for a moment. If you happen to be an atheist, agnostic, in other words, you're not, you're not sure if you believe the Bible or not. Well, number one, I've given you five good reasons already why you ought to believe it. You need to at least be open and investigate. See, here's the truth of it. Unless you understand who Jesus was, unless you trust him as your savior, you'll be lost forever. Now we can say, well, I don't believe that. But friend, if you are wrong, in other words, if the Bible is true and you are wrong, you will suffer eternally for your wrong decision. That's a very serious thing. You better know what you believe and that you're right before you die. And the truth of it is you never know when you're going to die. So you better get it taken care of. And I would urge you today to trust Christ as your savior. So we see the birth of the king. Turn with me to Luke chapter one. Luke chapter one in verse 30. Now keep in mind as we go to Luke, and this doesn't make the gospel of Luke any more true, but I just find it very interesting. Luke was one of the Bible writers that we have. He was a doctor. He was a physician, all right? He was somebody who dealt with realities, who dealt with facts, He knew what he was talking about, and he gave us exact information and truth. Why? Because he got it from God himself, of course. But nevertheless, 
very, very learned in that regard. Luke chapter one, verse 30, it says, and the angel said unto her, Mary, fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. Now, the name Jesus means Jehovah is salvation or God our savior. That is what his very name was. So when somebody, and I understand there were other people at the time who had the name Jesus, but he was the real deal. He was the Jesus, God our savior. What an appropriate name. Thou shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great and he shall be called the son of the highest. In other words, he's God. And the Lord, watch this, the Lord shall give unto him the throne of his father, David. He would be a king. He would be king. And watch this, he shall reign over the house of Jacob, Israel. How long? Forever. Uh, We've already seen that. He would be the eternal king. But here we see it. He shall reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom, just in case we don't know what forever means, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. She was going to be giving birth to God in the flesh. Imagine it. And of his kingdom there would be no end. What an absolute honor that would be. Now, after his birth, jump over to chapter two of Luke, or at his birth, I should say. He gives us this record. And there were in the same country, shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. You know, I was pondering this yesterday, and I was thinking, isn't it amazing? Now, we have have studied the uh, shepherds before here in church, especially around Christmas time. But don't you think it's absolutely amazing that he appeared first to the shepherds? Now, I think there could be a lot of reasons for that, but something that I never connected before until yesterday came to mind yesterday, and it was this. Isn't it interesting that he calls himself in John chapter 10, what? The good shepherd. The good shepherd. I think that is so incredibly neat that the Lord had that understanding of what that is and all that that means. And so he's the good shepherd. He knew he was the good shepherd. And isn't it interesting, he appears first or the first ones to could get the appearance of him are the shepherds uh, themselves. Look at it. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them And the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. They were petrified. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, don't be afraid. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. In other words, this is good news for everybody, not just some. Verse 11, For unto you is born this day, in the city of David, a savior, which is Christ the Lord. Now this is interesting. The angel appears. This one born is a savior. And then Mary also knew that this one coming, he was the king. He was going to be the king of Israel, the eternal king of Israel. So who do we see in Jesus Christ? We see that he's not only the savior of the world, but he's the eternal king of the world as well. 
You notice, for unto you is born this day in the city of David. Let me misread this. For unto you is born this day in the city of David. An example. No, it's more than that. For unto you is born this day in the city of David. A helper. Well, he was a helper, but he was way more than that. For unto you is born this day in the city of David. A great teacher. None have ever been better, but is more than that. For unto you is born this day in the city of David. A special person. Yes, he was all of that. No, friends, look at it. A savior, a savior. This is why he came. Yes, he's going to be the king of the world one day, but this is why he came. Now you would like to think, here's all these prophecies in the Old Testament, beginning in Genesis 3, actually, and going all the way through the Old Testament, talking about the one who would come, the descriptions, narrowing it down to that exact person in space and time. So you would think that the Jews would kind of know it because the scriptures were theirs. There was no New Testament at the time. And you think that they would say, this is so exciting. And they would embrace him, but they didn't. They didn't embrace him. Not generally. There were some who did. What does that lead us to? It leads us to number three, the rejection of the king. John says he came unto his own and his own received him not. John chapter one. We see the rejection of the king. A major problem with most of the Jewish people was that they did not understand that this king of Israel would have to be a humble suffering servant first before he would reign. In other words, there would be two comings of this great eternal king. For whatever reason, they didn't get it. For whatever reason, they didn't understand it. Or they didn't want to believe it for whatever reason. See, I think one of the major hang-up the Jewish people had was this issue of him having to come and be a, a suffering, humble servant first. Because when they thought of the king of Israel, they immediately projected that to a time when he would rule and reign. He would come, and he would conquer Rome, and and Rome would be done, and there'd be all the pomp, all the circumstance. He would be the king. Yeah, but that's not how he came the first time. A humble little baby who, by the way, didn't look any different than any other baby in the sense that, folks, I hate to tell you this, Jesus did not have a glowing gold Frisbee around his head. (laughs) Like you see in some of the cards, you know. Here's Jesus. How do you know which? Oh, yeah, he's the one with the glowing gold Frisbee around his head. He didn't have one of those, okay? His eyes didn't have little crosses in them or anything like that. He looked like a man because he was, okay? It's a little beautiful baby, Jewish baby boy. You know, people say, well, I wonder what he looked like. He looked like a Jewish baby boy, If he had hair, it was most likely dark. He probably had dark eyes, probably. Okay, his skin was not lily white. Okay, his skin was like any Jewish baby's skin would be. And as he grew up, that's what you would see. But they didn't accept him. As a matter of fact, the Jews not only didn't accept him in that, it was stronger than that. They rejected him. Understand this, Jesus, born of a virgin, lived a perfect life. How would you like to raise a perfectly obedient child? Parents, I'd say, wow, I'll take several of those. (laughs) He was, he was. Why? Because he didn't have a sin nature. See, he was 
Fully God, perfect man. Fully God, perfect man. Perfect man meaning he didn't have any sin. He didn't have a sin nature. He was perfect in that regard. I wouldn't doubt it. I can't prove this. There are no scriptures on this, but I wouldn't doubt it that there was some pretty heavy sibling jealousy in that family because he did have brothers and sisters, the Bible tells us. Half brothers and sisters. Of course, God was his father, not Joseph. But look at that. See, a major problem was that they didn't understand this thing about the two comings. One as a suffering savior, the other as a victorious king. In rejecting him as their savior, now here you go. In rejecting him as their savior, they were also rejecting him as their king. And therefore, the postponement of the kingdom that he brought with him, okay? When Jesus was born, what did Herod want to do? He wanted to kill him. We know that from Matthew 2, 16. Because the one born was said to be a king, and he considered him to be a threat. So he wanted to be sure he wasn't going to be a threat, and so what did he do? Well, Matthew 2, 16, Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding wroth, angry, and sent forth, and he slew all the children that were in Bethlehem and in all the coasts thereof from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. All right, we won't go into a big detailed study on what verse 16 is all about, but you get the picture. We want to be sure we are covering any boy baby from this age to this age, just to be sure that we have wiped them all out. You might say, well, that Herod was a nut, jealous nut, paranoid nut. Yeah, by the way, a lot of the kings were paranoid back then because they had a lot of enemies and they, the enemies loved the idea of getting rid of them and getting them out of the picture. But you know what? We still have Herods today. What do I mean? There are those who want to kill off the Lord Jesus Christ that we find in the Bible. They want to kill him off. Let me give you three Herods in modern society. The first one is this, the commercialism of the season in which we live. Some of the merchants and also the shoppers today are wanting to bury Jesus under all the stuff of the season. You know it. You see it around you. There is a war on Christmas, okay? Our president is very bold about uh, we ought to be saying Merry Christmas and don't be ashamed of that and all, and I think he's emboldened the American people, and I say good for him in doing that and giving people more courage to take a stand. But it was pathetic several years ago. You go into a store, Merry Christmas, and, you know, Happy Holidays. You just kind of, you know, you got to say, Lord, help me have self-control here. They would not have any holidays were it not for Jesus Christ. This would be a gloomy world. You take Christ out of Christmas, all you have is you've got this commercial system of people making a lot of money. It it doesn't have anything to do with what Christmas is all about. They want to bury Jesus under all the stuff of the season, from Santa to elves to reindeer to movies to the music. So much of it has nothing to do with Jesus Christ whatsoever. And yet that is what Christmas is about. Now, I'm not saying let's not have gifts and and sharing and give cards and all. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying let's keep Christ in the center of it. That's what I'm saying. 
Listen, Christmas is a wonderful time of celebration, but drill down to the core of the celebration. What are we celebrating? Well, I'm celebrating that I got that new tool that I've been wanting for two years. Now listen, if you're lost, that's one thing. If you're a Christian, you better check yourself out. That's not what Christmas is about. We have the greatest gift that's ever been given to mankind. That's what we ought to be celebrating. And you know what the other stuff? Yes, based on the example, we give gifts. Why? Because God gave the ultimate gift to you and me in sending Jesus. And so we share as God has shared with us. Again, I'm not against it all, but what is the reason for the season anyway? It's Jesus coming. And you know what, folks? The more we recognize that and are convinced of that and make that priority, the more God is going to bless. So the first, Herod, is the commercialism of the season. The second one, government officials, judges, and school boards. What am I saying? Our nation from the beginning has celebrated the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. This has been a national treasure in America. Yet today, just like in the days of Herod, they essentially want to banish Jesus from our society. Get rid of him. We see banning Christmas from public displays. And we get so excited when you have people like Shields put in full page advertisements, wishing people Merry Christmas and having Bible verses on there. And we get so excited. And you know what? Good for them. And yeah, go shop at Seals. Seals. Er, er. Go, <laughs> go shop at Shields. But can I tell you this? That ought to be the norm, not the exception. It ought to be the norm. Banning songs about him in school programs. Not here at Northland Christian School, by the way. It's all about Christ. Banishing the Bible from our schools. Why do we need to do that? Well, the, the story of the Bible is Jesus Christ. So again, we got to wipe him out. We got to get him out of the picture. We can't allow people to talk about him. Don't allow teachers in a public school to talk about him, to talk about what he did. Take the Bible out. Take Christianity out. It's no longer in the public schools. Christmas vacation It's winter vacation. No, friend, winter vacation is a trip to Florida. It's not getting rid of Jesus. It's a Herod in our society. I looked today, uh, just out of curiosity, this morning I looked at the calendar for the public school system, District 742, and I looked at their calendar and what did it have? Things listed on what District 742 is doing. One of them, Apollo High School. They were having the Apollo Holiday Concert. Shame on you. We wouldn't have these holidays were it not for Jesus Christ. And then, of course, the vacation. It says winter break. That's all it says, winter break. Used to be Christmas break when I was growing up. It's a Herod. It's a Herod. And perhaps worst Herod of all is this third one, the pulpits of America, okay? How many preachers from the pulpits of America are going to be proclaiming the true gospel of grace this Christmas season? You know what, friends? It ought to be coming out of our mouths continually. The story of Christ, what he did for us, and what he offers to mankind 
the story of Christ being God in the flesh, being born of a virgin, living a perfect life, going to the cross, paying for our sins, rising from the dead and offering eternal life as a free gift to anyone who would trust in him as savior. Now that's a simple message. I gave it in what, 15 seconds? And yet many churches, you won't hear anything about it. Rather, they'll be having Christmas concerts in churches. And their big song would be something like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. That's a Herod. Remember, the angels proclaimed it would be good tidings of great joy. And what was it about? For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. That's the good news, which is Christ the Lord. Back to Luke. Let's go back to Luke again, as I just mentioned. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, which is Christ the Lord. See, but here's what the pulpits are doing. Whether they mean it or not, whether they understand it or not, what they're doing is this. They're saying Jesus Christ is not enough to save you. Jesus Christ is not enough to get you to heaven. What he did on the cross was not sufficient. Friend, you are trying to do away with the biblical Jesus. This idea is an attempt, whether intentionally or unintentionally, to strip the Lord Jesus Christ of his role and his purpose as coming to this world to be our savior. Friend, this is why he came. Listen, Jesus would have never come if you could save yourself. He would have never come. He came to rescue man, to deliver him from an eternity in hell to an eternity in heaven. That's what it's all about. And the deeper we understand that and the more we love that message and that truth, the greater our Christmas will actually be. Why? Because it's in line with what the Bible teaches. Turn with me to John chapter 3. Now, I know some cards today still have John chapter 3, verse 16 on them. Maybe you've gotten one this year with John 3, 16. Anybody? Okay, couple, couple of you have. All right, can I tell you this? It's not as common as it used to be. No surprise there, right? But look at it with me. Did you know John 3, 16 gives us, really? It's a Christmas story, isn't it? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God the son came into the world, died for our sins, rose from the grave. Look what it says. That whosoever believeth in him, you put your faith, your trust in him, here's the promise, should not perish. You will not end up separated from God forever. But look what it says. But have everlasting life. Now you notice the condition to not perishing and having everlasting life, there's one thing that that's conditional on. You putting your faith, me putting my faith in Jesus Christ is the one who made the payment for our sin. That's the only thing listed there. That's the only thing. God will give anyone eternal life as a gift. See, friend, here, let me show you this very quickly here. Here we are. Let this hand represent you and me. Let my wallet represent our sin. We're sinners. Now, if we could work our sin off by doing good deeds and one day it gets to be this way, God would have said, okay, well, those who are really diligent and faithful, you know, you can do it. So no reason to send my son, but we couldn't do it. Our sin separates us from God because to get to heaven, you have to be perfect and no one is. We're sinners. And God says, no, that sin's got to be paid for. 
there's a penalty. It's separation from me for all eternity, death. No good works will be good enough to take away the sin. That's why the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. This hand representing the Lord Jesus Christ. You notice he's sinless. Here we are as sinners. He had none. The great exchange took place. When he died on the cross, he took our sin upon himself and he made the payment, leaving us nothing to pay for. He rose from the dead to prove that God was satisfied with the payment he made. And the Bible says, if you'll believe or trust in him as your savior, he'll give you as a gift everlasting life. And I don't want to cover up Jesus or get rid of him. I want to proclaim him. It's the only hope for mankind. Ephesians chapter two, verses eight and nine. Again, it puts, it's the same truth put another way, a different aspect. Look at it. For by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It is the gift of God. Look at it, what it says. Not of works, lest any man should boast. It's not of works. We could never do enough. Therefore, God sent Jesus to make the payment that we deserve to make He did it for us. He offers us eternal life as a gift. Yet here he came. He did what he did. He came the first time. Yes, he had to go to the cross. Jesus did, though, offer the kingdom when he came the first time, but the people rejected him. When you reject the king, you also reject his kingdom. It was a legitimate offer, by the way when he came. I've heard people say, well, it wasn't really a legitimate offer. Yes, it was. He doesn't lie, but he also knew he was going to have to go to the cross. Look with me to John chapter 19. I want you to see this. And here is one of the saddest passages, I believe, in all of the Bible. Get the picture. Jesus has been offering the Jews the kingdom. Matthew chapter 1 through Matthew chapter 12, the kingdom is being offered to the Jewish nation. He's there. He is the king. He's telling them, I'm come. Here it is. And all that. They rejected him. And from that point on in Matthew's account, Jesus starts talking about the suffering he was going to go through. And here it reaches a pinnacle. He stood now, three kangaroo courts, if you want to call it that. He stood there. He's been mocked. He's been ridiculed. He's been beaten to a pulp. And he's standing there, and the Jews could have said, wait a minute, we change our minds. We are embracing him as our savior. We're taking him as our savior. We believe he is the promised Messiah, the king of Israel. They could have said it, but they didn't say it. And Jesus knew they weren't going to say it. And look what it says, John 19, 14, Jesus is standing there. And it was the preparation of the Passover and about the sixth hour, he saith unto the Jews, this is Pilate, behold your king. Did you notice what he said? He didn't say behold your savior, behold your king. But they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, shall I crucify your king? Here you go. And the chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. It's like the last nail in their coffin. We have no king but Caesar. And they led him away to be crucified. Jump down to verse 21. And so here is Jesus, okay? 
they're preparing it. They're putting the writing on the placard that would be above his head. By the way, it was in several languages, multilingual back then. But you know what's very interesting? See, what it was, was it, it was an indictment, what they put on the cross. It was an indictment against them. And look at it, John 19, 21. Then said the chief priests of the Jews, because remember, what did it say? King of the Jews. King of the Jews. Then said the chief priests of the Jews to Pilate, write not the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. Now here is Pilate, a lost Roman. Look what he says in verse 22. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. And so the entire time Jesus is on the cross, as people are looking at him, it says, king of the Jews above him. How pathetic that they as a people, most of them, not all of them, they as a people would take pleasure in the fact that they were crucifying this one, that they had rejected as king because they rejected him as savior. But friends, here's the good news, which leads us to our last point today. The good news is this. There's going to be the second coming of that one, the king. The second coming. When the Jewish people rejected Jesus Christ as their Messiah, this brought judgment on them, the destruction of the temple, and the scattering of the Jewish people all over the world. That was AD 70 when the Rome came in and basically dismantled Jerusalem and they were scattered all over the world. But God is calling them back to their land and they have been coming back over the last 75 to 100 years by the millions, by the millions. The Jewish people will accept him the next time he comes. They will accept him as Messiah. They will accept him as the king. And of course, he as the king is bringing the kingdom with him. Zechariah 12.10, Old Testament prophet, I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. And they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. This is going to take place after the future, as we speak today, the future tribulation period, which is coming upon the whole world, which, by the way, one of the titles of it is called, the, the names of it is the time of Jacob's trouble, Israel's trouble. So their suffering for their rejection of Christ is not over. There's seven more years of it coming. One last verse in Revelation 19. I'm cutting a couple verses out. Revelation 19, 11 through 13 talks about the second coming of Christ at the end of the tribulation. But I want to notice something in verse 16, Revelation 19, 16. And he had on his vesture and on his thigh a name written. Look what was written. King of kings and Lord of lords. This is amazing. It's going to happen, all right? Let me say today, if you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, won't you do that today? Well, friends, that concludes this edition of Voice of Assurance. Thanks so much for listening. And would you share this ministry with a friend? To contact us or learn more about our ministry, please visit www.northlandchurch.com. Your prayers and support for this ministry are greatly appreciated. 
Thank you so much, and God bless you.